0: This episode of The Citadel Cafe is brought to you by listeners like you. Visit patreon.com thecitadelcafe to find out how you can become a patron and help make this show possible. This is the Citadel Cafe, episode number 454 for Thursday, October 27th, 2022. My name is Joel Duggan, and the Citadel Cafe is where my friends and I hang out to talk about the geeky stuff that we're into. Back this week, Alistair McFly, co-host of Long Range Sensors and Short Range Sensors. Both podcasts can be found at longrangesensors.com. And of course, at Alistair McFly on all the social media that matters, including Twitch. Hello, my friend. It's been a minute.
1: Kapla! It has been. <laughs> I thought, I normally just go, hello, and I thought, I'll just shake it up and, you know, and throw in a bit of cling on there to be on brand.
0: Keep the Star Trek fans on their toes, as it were. That's it. And we are going to be talking about Trek this week. That's one of the one of my favorite things about having you on the show is, of course, your deep knowledge of Star Trek and all things coming up. And I have seen, thanks to you pointing them out, uh, some of the new trailers <laughs> uh, for the upcoming series. I, more, I'm I'm most excited about Picard, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. I do wanna kick off the show with some non sci-fi news. It's science fact as a matter of fact. The JWST has released an image of the pillars of creation with their near cam technology. Uh, This is from webtelescope.org. The pillars of creation are set off in a kaleidoscope of color in NASA's James Webb telescope near infrared light view. This is a region where young stars are forming or have barely burst from their dusty cocoons as they continue to form. Newly formed stars are in the uh, nebula as scene-stealers. They are the bright red orbs that sometimes appear with eight diffraction spikes. Hubble's previous image of the Pillars of Creation pales in comparison because Hubble uses mostly visual light, which cannot penetrate the particles and dust in the nebula. The Pillars of Creation are 6,500 light years away, from us here on Earth. And for more fun and uh, interesting facts about the pillars of creation, I'm gonna defer everyone to the space gal on TikTok. Emily Calandrelli has a really fun video on the JWST uh, image, which starts off by saying, listen up people if you enjoy a good existential crisis, (laughs) which I thought is a great way to get your attention with science. Also sharing things like the Pillars of Creation are four to five light years in length because someone in her comment section said like, okay, so like give it to me in like how many Empire State Buildings tall is this? And she's like, no, 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 you don't get it. (laughs) And she's very polite about it. Like she's just like, she's trying to explain to, to everybody like just how freaking big these things are. The Pillars of Creation are actually just a small portion of the Eagle Nebula, which is 70 light years across. So not away. It is 70 light years in diameter yeah. <laughs> and the pillars of creation are just like this little nub you know kind of in the middle of it and uh it's it's a very famous image like it's been on the internet for a while from hubble and um but i really enjoy emily's content uh she does some really really cool stuff and she's always very excited about science and um from what i can tell she's she's um she, i think the tiktok is supporting like a, a science show that she does like on YouTube and it's like but like, getting kids excited in science and stuff like that. But but as as such, she's a very intelligent and very down to earth um I, like educator. So like she she gives it to you in like layman's terms, but she still uses the proper scientific language for it, which is great because like I'm not an astrophysicist. So like learning this stuff is better to start with baby steps.
1: It's TikTok as well. So I imagine that these are very short bite size things too. Oh, yeah. Rather than like a massive 20 minute or half an hour YouTube breakdown of things.
0: Although you'd be surprised. I can't remember his last name. Forrest is his first name. And he's another science educator and a scientist and author on on TikTok. And he'll do like a three minute video. And it's dense. Like it's there's a lot of information that when when they're really good educators and they have a lot of facts at their disposal and they're just cramming yeah. it into this three-minute video, they can get an awful lot in there to the point where like you have to rewatch it to like, did I retain all of what they just said? <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, um, I, I find like, because I've been talking with other friends about tiktok that are not on the platform and i don't post anything on the platform i've been trying to figure out whether i want to for a while not because i want to be on there but because you know for promoting twitch and and podcasts and stuff it might be a a decent way to do it the problem is that i'm not on camera in anything that i do so audio clips on twitch don't really you'd have to have other other video some other hook you know visually One of the things that I've noticed is that, like, I don't necessarily watch a lot of nonsense. People dismiss TikTok as nonsense. And the vast majority of it is, believe me. But (laughs) uh, when that starts happening, I start scrolling faster or I turn it off and I, I start again. Like, I close the app and start again. Because what I'm interested in from TikTok, what I enjoy from it are things like cooking videos, recipes I can bookmark, science stuff like this, about pillars of creation from, like, The Space Gal or other accounts Uh, For a while there, it was a a lot of like dog training and and dog videos and stuff like that. And I still enjoy if I'm going to watch fluff on TikTok, it's probably dog videos. That's and that's fine. I think that (laughs) I, I enjoy the serotonin hit. I had there's a really funny video and I don't remember. I didn't bookmark it, but it was a Australian shepherd full grown standing with an Australian shepherd puppy running around it in circles, like just tight little circles around this other dog nonstop, just like zip, 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 zip. And the captions that they had put over the video were millennials in the workforce over the main dog. And then Gen Z was tracking the little puppy as it went around in circles. <laughs> and I was just like, that's hilarious. <laughs> like it, re- It really was it really, really was funny. And, and the, the cuteness of it, of course, was over the top. Because like the Australian shepherds are so floofy when they're puppies. It was just this little ball of fur like running around in circles. Obviously, as a, as a sci-fi fan, have you been following any of the, the NASA news, the, the JWST stuff over the last little while?
1: I have done earlier in the summer, but um, not recently, not over the last, uh, I'd say probably two months, maybe. So what else is new with you? I, I actually discovered something that uh, I wasn't ever expecting to. I went to Strange Adventures, which is a comic book store that we have here in Halifax. And I found out that there's some Bill and Ted toys that have been re-released. Because it, I mean, this seems to be quite a, a big common thing right now as well is, um, uh, you know, you'll have classic toys and uh, it's happening with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They're bringing out like the remakes of the classic figures. When I was a kid, I had a Bill and Ted figure, which was kind of weird because it would plug, they'd have little headphone sockets on the backs, and you plug them into a cassette tape, and they'd have a little amp speaker. And the idea is that you had this music that was really good, but the music only played when you squeezed their legs. So the idea is you'd squeeze their legs repeatedly and it would just make it sound like they can't play guitar, <laughs> which is a really kind of fun way of doing it. Um, but I had these two figures when I was a kid and I never had the phone booth. I remember looking at the, the back of the blister pack and they had the, the phone booth Then it looked great. Never, ever could find it anywhere. And it was there in Strange Adventures just last week. So I've ended up uh, picking up one of these recreations of it, and it's absolutely fantastic. It's uh, by a company called Incendium, and I no longer have the figures to go with it, and the figures are expensive. I think they're like like 50, 60 dollars, something like that, a piece, which is nuts, and this is just for the regular play figures, not with the headphone jacks in the back, like I had when I was a kid. And whilst I was trying to find a link to share with you, I found that there's also a life-size Bill & Ted phone booth by a company called Cubicall who make, you know, basically phone booths for offices and things like that. So it's a life-size one that can be used as a landline and for voice calls. And it is $9,345. U.S. Oh my gosh. Which is like 12500 thousand Canadian dollars. I was like, eh, no no (laughs) no that's a bit more out of my price range
0: now because of the popularity of another phone booth i can think of yes uh the tardis from doctor who have there been replicas like life-size replicas of that because i can see that also fetching ten thousand dollars and people maybe not barking at that
1: um i've seen plenty that have been constructed by people uh, I don't know if there's been ones that have been commercially available like that. Uh, if there have, then probably not for a long time. I know that there was a, another sort of comic book store here in Halifax that closed down, sadly. But they had one outside. Um, I can't remember what it was, yeah, I can't remember what it was called. But yeah, they had one just outdoors. And when they packed up shop, that was one of the things that they sold off and again for a crazy amount of money that i couldn't afford plus i was sharing an apartment with somebody at the time so i didn't really
0: have the room and that's the thing when you're in an apartment like there's only so much room that you can dedicate to to nerdy stuff like that when it starts to become like furniture level size stuff oh, yeah. i would imagine the hardest thing about the like the hardest piece t- if you were to make something like this on your own with the bill and ted's excellent phone booth is the phone like Mm. You you very rarely see payphones on the street uh, ever anymore. And yeah. and I think even finding a, a unit, especially if you want it to be a working unit, it would have to be maybe something that's made up. I doubt that you'd actually ever find like an or like a real payphone from, from years ago. because yeah. I don't know what I they've think... done with them. And I imagine they've just been like decommissioned for parts or maybe they've been sent to Hollywood, you know, when they'd have to do like period pieces and stuff like that. And they need phones yeah, phone booths and things.
1: I know that the cubicle ones, they also have the buttons light up like in the movie, which is kind of cool. One other thing that I've been spending a lot of my money on lately is Star Trek, the customizable card game, which I think I may have told you about previously.
0: Is this like a digital card game or is it like a a like a tabletop, like physical?
1: Uh, This is tabletop. This is physical. So this is an old game from 1994. Oh, and it was one of the first competitors to Magic the Gathering. So Magic the Gathering started off this entire customizable card game thing. And uh, Decipher made the Star Trek customizable car game. And to the license, it is actually very, very good uses a lot of mechanics that you would expect like you you have a space line of planets and uh, and space phenomena and you have ships that travel up and down the space line you can beam people down beam people up uh, get into space battles and all this kind of stuff it's really really quite good and I had a couple of starter decks when I was a kid but the problem is that the way they distributed the cards was so random that even with a couple of them I didn't have enough to even play a game. So I never played. Uh, but over the years, I've kind of collected more and more. And recently, I ended up getting a massive uh, pile. I've almost doubled it. I, I, I mean, I'm into the probably the four digits uh, number of cards right now. So insane amount. But for the first time since the mid-90s, I actually have been able to play some some games with people in person including with Megan as oh, well nice very cool yeah our, our good friend Megan Townsend so uh, the feedback has been great they've everybody I've played it with has loved it I've even managed to play online using a an app called lackey ccg it's um, a free app for just playing a bunch of different customizable card games somebody made a plug-in for it so I've been able to play with a couple of friends back in England as well and that's uh, that's been surprisingly good especially for them they don't have to buy any cards either
0: (laughs) yeah i guess if you can have access to it you know if if people can just like play either digitally or physically that's an interesting mix i've i've heard of different apps that people Mm. use for online dungeons and dragons you know campaigns where yeah it just allows people to kind of communicate and have like a, a virtual tabletop which might be the name of the app actually uh, and I've heard a lot of people say that, like, the tools have improved over the last few years. Specifically, I think over the pandemic, that that definitely some development has gone into those tools. But I didn't yeah. think about uh, card games that would be both digital and physical in order to have that work. So that players or friends abroad that don't have the decks or just you know aren't collectors. Could then still participate. You could use your physical tech, and they could use like a virtual one. I never thought about that. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's really neat. And uh, another game that is probably my favorite board game. I even streamed it on Twitch. Uh, is Star Trek Ascendancy? They've brought out two new expansions for it. It's a four X game, so it's pretty big in scope. Um, it's a board where you you're. Exploring planets, and so you've got all these sort of system discs that you flip over, and and so the the board isn't like a set physical board; it it builds itself as you go out. And one of the key things I love about it is every race plays true to themselves. So you've got the Federation who gain bonus points for exploring, but they can't make contact with pre-Warp civilizations. You've got the Klingons who they get points for going out and battle, but they can't retreat. You've got the Romulans who kind of keep to themselves, but they, uh, they also have cloaking technology. So they, they get first strike every single time because they kind of pounce on you. So it's, it's really cool for that. And they've brought out the Breen, which was a race from Deep Space Nine, who are very territorial. So if you like to kind of turtle in games, I feel that they're going to be the best kind of uh, species for that. And then there's the Dominion, which is a massive big expansion which adds a new game mode where you can actually have the Dominion War. So the idea is that for four players you'd have 2v2. Okay, and okay. it's it's nuts. You've got the wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant in there. And so you've got now the Alpha and Gamma Quadrant. It's it's nuts just how big this thing is getting. Uh, so those are two brand new expansions that were released when we thought that the game was over and there weren't going to be anymore. And so now I'm having to make new foam core inserts for all the boxes <laughs> to fit all the components. There's so many of them. And, of course, with that, they have escalation packs, so if you need additional ships, there's those. There's new star bases. So, of course, I ordered those. I have given this company so much of my money. Gale Force 9 are the company you make it, but it is by far my, my favorite uh, tabletop board game. And, and, and both of these games I'm going to be covering on a future episode of Short Range Sensors at some point.
0: This is the one that I think you've told me about the most and I've certainly seen the most pictures of because I remember speaking with you about the foam insert plan like you were just like how do I what's the best you know course of action for like figuring (sighs) out this 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 um, organized I really wish that companies would I guess they would end up using it to make more money and overcharge I just I feel like when you have a game like that that has that many pieces you should included in the box should be some sort of organizational storage thing i know you know
1: the the box inserts are more for shipping the components rather than storing. right especially when you get a lot of card punch outs where you and and that's what this game's like you get a load of cards so they lay flat in the box but once you punch them all out there's not really much room in the box for that stuff and uh, uh, one of the things i've been able to do with all these phone call inserts is fit most of the existing expansions bar one which is the borg into a sing into the base game box so i managed to fit a lot there and then the breen and dominion i'm having to put into their their own one which is fine because they kind of work more together anyway yeah but yeah it it allows you to compile not compile um uh, consolidate a lot of these pieces into just a single box which makes life a lot easier as well
0: with regards to the pieces, like, is it, are there things that you could display or is it better to kind of have them all tucked away in boxes? Like they're not things that, that they serve more of a game purpose rather than also double as like, this would look really good on a shelf, that kind of thing. I'm thinking mostly of like yeah. Warhammer, like, you know, how Warhammer figures, like some people, they don't really play Warhammer 40k. Like they just, they paint the figures and they, it's cool and they display them and that's it.
1: The, the pieces, because you're, you're, you're not a captain controlling a single ship you are the federation you are the klingon empire so you have like several ships so they're absolutely tiny so they're not they're not very big pieces so they're not really good for displaying but there are people who have actually done basically the warhammer style way of painting things you know just doing it like their miniatures and i've seen some very impressive paint jobs on it that is way above my skill set there's no way (laughs) that i could paint uh, to that level of detail at that scale, no way. but there are some people who've done that, and that is impressive. and And if it was done like that, then then maybe, sure. um but overall, not I wouldn't say so with this game.
0: I had someone ask me, you know, if I've ever done any model painting or miniature painting and and whatnot because of my my art background. and I mean, I've never been a painter. Uh, I've done some digital painting, but I, I've never really been a physical mm. painter. I always leaned heavily on mostly dry media in in school but then you know ink and and you know cartooning and black and white and stuff like that but as much as i like detail in my work there is a limit to the physical size like i used to draw my comic strips at 16 plus inches wide and then they would be shrunk down and displayed online because whenever it came to doing detail on one of my characters, I really don't like like the teeny tiny little marks, like t- just having to like get your nose right down to the paper. And so when I watch um, people paint these online, one of the streamers I follow, uh, Wolf Mackina, uh, does the odd stream where he paints miniatures. And he's got like a magnifying glass and like he's doing these tiny, tiny little details. And the perfectionist in me combined with my big hands would just it would be like oil and water i would not enjoy the experience i don't think of trying to get it to look just the way that i want when the the thing that you're painting is so tiny it's like the belt buckle on an orc or something and and knowing yeah. that it would be such a tedious process to get that done um that's why i when i moved to digital art one of the things that i enjoyed was putting in extra detail because you can zoom in you can make the belt buckle like the size of your computer screen and while that's similar to a magnifying glass you don't have to have the same minute motor skills to do the painting you can still paint in broad strokes but you're just you know you're zoomed in and so i've never i've never gotten into it and plus like i think early on in my art career when that would have been something that i would have you know been potentially into the cost of getting into a hobby like that was always just like nope i can see i can i can tell (laughs) from my trips to the comic store how much money these things cost i need to stay away i i know i will like it but i i cannot afford it back when when that was a thing
1: when you digitize them were you converting them into vector based shape so that you could expand them to whatever size and not lose detail
0: or no on on purpose um no converting to vector was was a was a pain and you'd lose nothing it was never perfect like you'd always end up with a line that didn't connect or something would be fuzzy because ultimately ink on paper has like an edge and one of the things i actually had to do in photoshop and this was also a time saver thing so when i was drawing the star crossed comic strip like when i scanned it in at like three or four hundred dpi it would be in two parts i'd have to scan half of the comic and then the other half of the comic then i'd have to line them up uh, usually not a big deal because the, usually the panels would be where I would, where I would make that snip so I wasn't cutting across the artwork. But uh, I had to make an imperfect brush in Photoshop because if I went in with the default Photoshop brush, ink bleeds on paper. And when you've got that kind of resolution in your scan and you're drawing a line, the edge of that line has to have like a little bit of a fuzz to it, like a little bit of inconsistency. Otherwise, it looks too perfect and looks too digital. And you could could look at something that I drew on paper and then fixed a mistake or added something later digitally. And the digital line would stand out dramatically against the hand-drawn line. Not because they were different, like in terms of their um, shape or quality. It'd be more like, it's like the rendering of the line. The edges of the line had mathematically perfect edges, you know, in Photoshop. But then the line that I drew on paper would have, the grain of the paper underneath it and so you had to kind of create that illusion of of imperfection and in a way it was great because it meant that i couldn't get in and do like really tight pixel detail which i could get sucked into in photoshop and it would just be a waste of time that no one would ever, would ever see i would get it but it would just be a time sink and i would be eight hours doing a comic that should have taken me four you know and and right. so i i never went the vector road. i i didn't i never really, I think because of my old school training, like I just I never really went the whole vector art thing, with the exception of when I worked in animation, because that's what you had to do. That was the program. But I, I always preferred Photoshop over vector programs in terms of drawing.
1: And, and just stylistically, do you, I take it you prefer seeing the imperfections there as opposed to something as sharp as as vector based uh, comics. Or does it just depend on the, the comic style?
0: no it depends uh and there's different programs out there now that are vector based that do have those kind of imperfections built in and oh, so they're really? the oh, yeah, they're, cool. they're meant to like things like um i think i don't know what it's called now it's changed names a couple of times but manga studio was one that came out when we were doing comics coast to coast and it was a vector program or it built itself as a vector like program where you could do like a brush stroke and it would have like an arc to it that you could control with with nodes and and all the ways that vector normally works. But then it would have like this kind of like faux brush, like brush feather kind of at the end of it, which would be normally something you would only get in in a, in a raster program. So it kind of split the difference and it would then allow you to do vector for things like your panel borders and speech balloons and stuff like that. But then when it came to hand drawing, it had a pencil tool and you could do sketches and then your ink drawing would kind of like snap over that. And I, I always had an issue with like those kind of things kind of taking out, in my opinion, the artist's natural lines. So I had a, a compliment paid to me by Peyton, a friend of ours, and and one of the guys that started the show with me. I can't remember what image he was looking at, but it was a piece that I had done for someone. And he came in while I was working on it. And he's like, man, this is going to sound weird, but I mean, this as a compliment. But like, I could tell <laughs> from like the blade of grass that you just drew, that you drew it. And I was just like, what? And he's like, there's just, you've got an arc to some of your stuff. Like he he's an artist as well. And the fact that yeah. he could pick up on that. and And I was like, you know, I think, That's what I miss about um, the big influx of digital comics and stuff online and web comics was sometimes people were still drawing them by hand like me, but other times when they were doing it uh, digitally, their characters were unique, their writing and story and jokes were all unique. But on a line level, what I was seeing was everybody looked the same, right, because the program's that were popular were homogenizing the the line the artist's line i guess is the best way to say it it's a hard thing to express verbally but it's you know (laughs) well in the same way that say like if you signed your name and a computer turned it into vector it's not going to look the same it's going to look like your name it's going to be legible it's going to be legal if it's used in in, like signing a document but if you put it next to you signing your name over and over again four or five times on a piece of paper, it's not it's not gonna be the same experience for the viewer if you're looking at that artistically and not just as a signature. And it's the same thing with artists. I mean, your your work ends up being as Makes much sense. of your signature as as your handwriting is. So um, but yeah, I working on things like um physical models. I think the closest I get now, and people on my Friday streams can attest to this. Uh, When I have to put the decals on Lego pieces and I have to get out the tweezers and put like this little like five by seven millimeter sticker on this barely bigger (laughs) than that piece of Lego, like it's it's tough. It's not my favorite part of the build. There's a couple of memes in chat where it's just like we load stickers. (laughs) It's just it's not (laughs) it's not the best experience because like when you get them crooked, they're hard to fix because like the Lego stickers are meant to stay on there. And I always uh, revel when they have important pieces that are pre-printed. I understand it increases the cost of, of the model, but for example, the Optimus Prime, his shoulder pads—he's got these great big white Autobot symbols—and I am so glad I didn't have to center those and make those perfect because you'd want them to be. They're they're a key, you know, kind of part of the figure in terms of the vi- visual appearance. But they were pre-printed pieces that you just clicked on Lego, which is great. You know, like I that, that to me is is a better experience when it comes to the really important stuff. Now, other things like headlights and grills and things on the, the truck, they were, they were decals that you had to put on. Moving into the main discussion this week, I can touch on a new show that I've been watching. Uh, we are gonna get into some Star Trek news as well, but I wanted to stay in the realm of sci-fi and talk about the peripheral on Prime Video, starring Chloe Grace Moretz, Jack Rayner and Louis Hertham. Uh, haven't seen much from Louis Hertham, but the show is only just starting. Uh, but I will tip my hat to uh, Rayner and Moretz. Uh, fantastic acting off off the start. Really enjoyed the pilot. I am about halfway through episode two. Episode three isn't out yet. It comes out tomorrow, I believe. Uh, so it's one of those things that's being released week to week, which you and I have discussed before. Is a is a good way, I think, to release new shows, especially shows that yeah. ask a lot of questions or have a lot of mystery to them. Uh, I'd rather have that trickle. I say trickle only because we're used to things like, you know, dumps on Netflix where it's binge watching. Um, But uh, shows like this, I I think, are are good for this kind of release. The Peripheral is a near future sci fi series. I believe it's set in like 2039. So not terribly far off with Flynn Fisher and Burton Fisher, our brother, sister, that's uh, Moretz and Raynor. And uh, they're kind of set in, they don't ever say it. I don't think it's filmed in North Carolina, uh, but I don't know if they've mentioned that in the show, but everybody's got um, kind of like a Carolinan accent in, from the US. Uh, so it has kind of like a small town, not necessarily backwoods, but it has like a small town, kind of like um, Southern feel as far as the, the language goes and, and the the dialogue but it is from series creator scott smith with westworld creators jonathan noland and lisa joy as executive producers it's an adaptation of william gibson's novel of the same name the peripheral and in the show slight spoilers but really not much plot wise has happened so i can't spoil too much um it's a virtual there's virtual reality gaming and technology has really affected society things like um, you've got haptic feedback implants that you see in people. I think they're called haptics. You have people answering phone calls in their head, like with their eyeballs. Uh, the visual that the the show gives you is that when someone calls someone else digitally, there's like a ring that happens around their iris and then the person blinks to answer. And then they basically just lie in bed and like, or, or stand wherever they are and speak. And much the same as you and I would with earbuds in, they're just talking to the other person and the audio seems to be happening privately for that person. So like the person receiving the call can hear the other person in their head, but it's not something that's outside. And yet there's no headphones, there's no external anything. So I'm not quite sure how it all works yet, but that's part of the, like the the mystery of of the show.
1: Imagine receiving a call that you just don't want to answer. Like normally, like if somebody calls you, the phone rings and you're just like, I'm just going to leave that sit there. I'm going to wait until it just goes to voicemail. Imagine having it in this setup and basically you can't blink. You have to just basically keep your eyes wide open. That's kind of how that sounds.
0: Well, there's probably some way to ignore it. Like there's probably some way way to like, you know, wink with right eye to answer, wink with left eye to send a voicemail or something. Or or roll your eyes. Yeah, roll your eyes. That would be a good one. You'd never get a teenager (laughs) to answer the phone. Uh, I, I feel like they're like, they're, they're kind of like throwing it out there with like, this is basically how it works, but they're not explaining like all of the details, but they do, yeah they do focus a lot on eyeballs and I'll give a warning here. Don't eat while you're watching this show, uh, because of know. eyeballs and I'm going to leave it there. I don't think I need to, to discuss exactly what happened. But it was surprising, given that most of the show is kind of like set in this small town. They they have these virtual reality headgear rigs that are are the new thing, like basically online gaming that we all experience now, but like amped up to the point where it's VR. And then in the VR scenes, it, it's just it's just more TV show. Like they've just they've filmed actors and stuff like that. It's not like it's a digital world or anything like that. They have cool special effects and different things but it works a lot like someone going into some sort of like simulation game like grand theft auto or a military game like modern warfare and essentially one of the best ways that people that are good at this stuff can make money is by being hired by some rich person to get them to level 20 or to help them through a hard part of the sim so they hire these people that are very good video gamers and, and sim players and they they come in and that's how these people are making their, their money. And what I found so interesting about the show was the juxtaposition of this small town family kind of try, struggling to keep it together. Flynn is kind of like, she's the moral kind of like straight shooter in, in the group. Her older brother, uh, Burton, I think it's her older brother, um, is is the one that's in The Sims all the time. And he's trying to make money and he's trying to help because their mom is sick. She needs medication. The medication is very expensive. They obviously don't have any kind of coverage. And so um, Flynn works at, the local print shop but it's a it's a 3d printer print shop like just think about shelves and shelves of 3d printers and they do stuff like you know (laughs) print wedding toppers and and there's stuff like that that happens like the kind of like the everyday that's just kind of taken the technology that we have and kind of like pushes it to like what's this going to be in 20 years you know like people are not going to want to own their own 3d printer they're just going to walk down the street and just pay some person that has like 100 3d printers to just print off the stuff that they need and anyway, it's, it was an interesting kind of like look at like the day to day. There's a, a, a w, double amputee in the show and his wheelchair is really interesting and cool. He can go from like inside to outside. It, it, it is both a motorized vehicle on the street and then he can kind of like remove half of it and then go into a bar on like a, a single wheel um, wheelchair. It's it's very very interesting that they've just kind of taken these things and just kind of like they're just tweaked enough to make it sci-fi, but everything else is very believable and very gritty. There's still just just terrible people. Um Corbel Pickett, I believe is the one of the antagonists in the show at uh, that's Lewis uh Hertham that I mentioned at the top. And you've seen him in other stuff before playing a very similar role, kind of like that smooth-talking southern mustache twirling kind of gangster deal uh and um the show is violent in some places. So you got to be careful of that. Definitely not for, for kiddies at all. Um, but the, the relationship with Flynn and Burton is really interesting because in the show, she kind of looks at him as kind of a slacker, but as you find out, uh, because their mom is short on meds, he's dealing with some chronic pain and hiding it because he's giving his extra meds to his mom who who's ailing and, and failing, kind of like in bed. So they they do a good job of like painting these stereotypes, which you think you get in the first 20 minutes of the show. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, he's kind of a slough off, do nothing gamer, but he's got a heart of gold and he's doing some nice things for the family as, at his own expense. Um, yeah. Anyway, he gets sent a prototype sim piece of headgear. I don't remember what he called it. And the company wanted him to test it and they're going to pay him a lot of money. It's like two months worth of keeping the family afloat. So he can't say no. The thing is that it wasn't him playing that they were interested in. It was Flynn using his avatar to play Sims. Flynn is a bit of a savant in the Sim world. She's almost infamous at how good she is at this stuff. But she doesn't do it because she has to earn money support the family, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so he convinces her, like, look, they did—they they're paying me because they think it's me, but they really want you to test drive this thing. So could you please do it? It's enough money to sustain us for a couple months, and the the family finances are stressful for Flynn, so she agrees. Anyway, this thing is more than it appears, and there—it's new technology that basically allows the person partaking in the sim to feel pain even if it's not physically felt your brain is registering that you're being stabbed or you're being shot or hit or you've fell off your bike or whatever and so she is really taken by the experience but it gets really spooky really quickly and that is where all the mystery comes in because you don't know who sent them this headgear um, there is like a dark net hit put out on the family and she and her brother and her brother's friends have to react to that. And her bro- there's then there's this whole other layer where her brothers and her brother's friends react like an elite military force. And you're like, wait a minute, are these guys like former military? And are they retired? And now they just kind of like sit around and play video games? Or are they people that play Sims so much and have gotten so good at it that they operate like a elite military team doing like a d- defending their home against these people that are coming to try and kill them. So it went from like this interesting sci-fi drama of like the introspective idea of like, what if the world had all this virtual connection to like straight up action show in the first episode, uh, I, and then bleeding over into the second. So I'm on board. Uh, I've, I've heard some mixed reviews online, but I, I haven't quite finished the second episode yet so i'm leaving it as a high potential show very high uh production value it looks fantastic great acting especially from from moretz moretz is i mean she's a decorated actor anyway but she she's really really good in this there's a lot of physical acting too like when she's got her eyes closed and she's in the sim they'll do these shots of her kind of like reacting to what's happening um, just emotionally, just like squints and facial stuff, like all the things that she does really convince you of like panic or pain or uh, being enthralled or being wowed by the environment. And she's doing it with her eyes closed, literally. <laughs> so so there's, there's a lot going on there that I, I really like. I would say it's probably my new Friday night show now that the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power is over. And I stand here surprised because... I have definitely not had the best things to say about Prime Video Series in the past. And now that seems to be the higher bar of of show that I tend to go for now. It tends to be on Prime. And I'm wondering how much of that is the, here's the first two, and then every Friday from here on out.
1: Especially when you've got the creators of Westworld. I mean, they've easily established that they know what they're doing with this kind of thing as well. Um, that's because I saw this trailer, I want to say about two or three weeks ago. And I, I was, I was very intrigued the moment I saw the futuristic version of London and seeing streets that I used to walk down every day <laughs> now all looking very sci-fi esque and stuff. Uh, but then at the very end of the trailer, when it said that it was by Jonathan Nolan, and Lisa joy, it's like, oh, okay, this, this, this looks like it's going to be very good then. And, and it certainly sounds like they've, they've, held up to that bar from what you've described.
0: I've never finished Westworld. Did that show wrap or did it just kind of like go into endless oh. like distant seasons on HBO?
1: They have finished the 4th season and there's a 5th on the way.
0: Okay. So I don't I don't think I finished the 4th.
1: I like that each season is doing something very different and the trailer for season 5 looks like it's going to be incredible. It's uh I I really love the direction that they've taken the show. And so I I highly, highly recommend watching it. If you enjoyed the first season, even though it seems a bit weird as they kind of step away from the park, um, there's other stuff that goes on that may bring you back there a little bit. So it's, it's very interesting the direction it goes up without trying to spoil much.
0: Without getting into the details as to why there are some similarities that between Westworld and the peripheral that that I do pick I up could on. I can
1: see that from the trailer, yeah. There was definitely elements of that, that that piqued my interest, I should say.
0: And so my guess is that if people are giving it poor reviews or just going like, bah, it's just like Westworld, it's probably because there are some parallels. But there's only two episodes. Like, you can't you can't just say, <laughs> oh, there's just another Westworld because there's only two episodes. Like, give it the season and see what it does. And already for me yeah. it's it's doing enough different from Westworld that I think it's it's interesting. What I like so much about this compared to Westworld is that Westworld feels so far in the future compared to where we are now. Yeah. And given the recent news from virtual reality, you know, developers and stuff uh in the last few years, especially this fall, I would say that like this is closer in terms of It's sort of like when they, when Jurassic Park came out, like and taking like the DNA and cloning and just kind of like pushing that Mm. little extra mile. It's like no, we're not there, but it's, it's feasible. Like it's not completely unbelievable, uh, which is I think one of the reasons why that movie worked so well in the '90s. And I think that that's you know what they're doing here is like everybody's talking virtual reality. Like it's definitely things that makes evening news or morning talk shows or whatever, or podcasts. Uh, And and I feel like. (laughs) they're just kind of pushing it. It's like, well, what if this becomes like the economy in the world? And it was really, it's really interesting. So I won't get into why I think it's similar to Westworld because I think that's a little bit of a spoiler for the first two episodes. But uh, I would encourage people to check it out. I I think it's good. So what has been on your big or small screen in the last little while?
1: I've been watching the brand new revival continuation series of Quantum Leap. And in between that, I've been re-watching the original series of Quantum Leap. Uh, I've I've been on just a a big Quantum Leap uh, binge fest, uh, really. But uh, I'm I'm actually surprisingly liking it. It's airing on City TV in Canada, and it's an NBC show uh, that streams on Peacock in the US. And I think they had originally about 10 episodes, but they just got extended to a full season order. So NBC, you're obviously happy with the direction the show is going in as well. Um, But I know that you and I have spoken briefly and you haven't seen Quantum Leap. Oh, I'd seen the original.
0: I I didn't know. Oh, you had to, okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, but but for context, when it was actually Mm. on TV. Right. As did I, as did I. So it's been a minute, is what I'm saying. (laughs) And not one of those shows that I ever look back on and think, I'd like to watch that again. Or... Uh, Something that I felt would stand up because I remember being sick later on home from school and watching it in syndication Would it would be it would be like airing at two o'clock in the afternoon or something, you know, on whatever cable channel and thinking like at that time going like, woof, this is old, (laughs) you know, so if I was saying that about the show before I was out of high school, then the chances of me going back and watching a show from 1989 now
1: pretty slim. I'm really still enjoying it. I I think it holds up better than you'd expect. There's certainly some bits where um, perhaps it's a little bit like, ah, that probably wouldn't happen these days. But it was very forward-thinking. I mean, you've got to think 1989, early 90s. They have a cis, straight, white male who can leap into the bodies of all sorts of different people. So there's one episode where... He leaps into a man. He goes to sit down at a restaurant. He has no idea that he's leaped into the body of a black man during the time of segregation. And that gets into a lot of trouble. There's other ones where he leaps into women who've uh, dealt with harassment. And dealing with stuff from the perspective of a uh, white male, you know, to kind of uh, you know, highlight certain things in a way that most of the shows couldn't. It's similar to how Star Trek will use aliens to highlight different perspectives in society that you just couldn't do in a, a non-sci-fi setting. Uh, it was very forward-thinking in that regard and, and, and really good. Now, that show was also very episodic. The new revival series is a continuation. It doesn't have Scott Bakula in it, sadly. And Dean Stockwell, who played Al, has since passed away just a few years ago. Uh, but there are some nice nods to uh, Dean Stockwell's character, which is, is good. But this continues on with a new team. They're reviving the the program, and they are doing it where they're still leaping from life to life each episode. But there is an overarching story arc that's going on throughout the season. Which, as when when you see the first episode, it's like, okay, this might work out. The more time goes on, and we're on episode six now, the more intrigued and involved I'm, and as they start to pick out new pieces, because. The main premise is that they weren't ready to go and a guy called Ben Song, played by Raymond Lee, steps into the Quantum Leap Accelerator prematurely and unlike the original series where that was just done because um, Scott Bachelor's character needed to uh, secure funding, we don't know why Ben Song leaped. He just decided to leap and go do this thing and he's done some weird stuff with the program. But his brain is Swiss cheese, so he can't even remember why. So everybody's trying to ask you, like, what the hell are you doing? And he doesn't know. He doesn't have an answer. And so he's trying to discover that as well. And uh, joining them is Ernie Hudson, who's in charge of the program. So to have Winston Zedmore from Ghostbusters is a, a nice highlight to the show. I'm really loving his portrayal in it. And he is playing a character called Herbert Magic Williams. Now, I don't know how good your memory is of, of the show, but there was a big episode where uh, Sam Beckett leaps into a, a guy during the Vietnam War, and he's there to help save his brother's life. And the guy that he leapt into is the guy that Ernie Hudson is playing.
0: Oh, interesting. So they've got some ties to the original series, even in the characters.
1: That's it. Uh, because this show is created by Donald P. Belisario and produced by Deborah Pratt. They are the same creator and producer that worked on the original series. Deborah Pratt actually is also the voice of Ziggy and basically the narrator at the beginning of each episode. So you've got the same team continuing this. So it's not like just somebody else has gone, oh, I want to remake that show that I used to like when I was younger. Mm. And this is the original creators, which is really good. So yeah, they've got those ties. And I won't go too much into why, um, but essentially there's some kind of residual memory that, that he had um, after the leap, and he's not really sure what happened. But because he was in the military, he rose through the ranks, and then it turns out that he got to a point where he had clearance and he found out about the project and found out that he died in the original timeline. And he found out that Sam Beckett had saved his life. And so he that's how he decided to get involved in the project, which is is kind of neat. There's just something else going on. And just seeing all these other characters trying to figure things out. We've got um, a character called Ian Wright, who's played by Mason Alexander Park, who's uh, non-binary. And I love their performance. They're basically taking on the role of Gushy now, who is basically this sort of scientist engineer
0: and it's it's a lot of fun it's cool that they're not just remaking it you know like it's that's it yeah the, the fact that it's an extent like the the original team doing it is at least something that feels less like a money grab you know like whenever these shows get remade yeah. by whoever you're just like oh god like why like i'd rather see something new most of the time like it, adapt a new novel i'm not saying that it has to be an original you know show but like well peripheral like it's an existing novel but it's not like it's the remake of the peripheral from 1984 do you know what i mean like it's, they which doesn't exist i made that up but like it's they're not just rehashing old stories uh they seem to be doing something new which is cool so and that's nice yeah. with quantum leap and i you know i kind of forget because i think about quantum leap as like one of those doofy episodic dramas that was on TV when I was a kid. Mm. I don't think about it as sci-fi when it obviously is. You know what I mean? Like it has has enough in it to call it a sci-fi
1: show. The funny thing is that society didn't see it that way either because back then in the early 90s, sci-fi was never brought up for Emmy Awards. Never. That that wasn't a thing. This was nominated for 51 Emmys. And it won a few of them. So. It it was being seen as a drama, which is is pretty incredible. Um, just because, like like I said, star, uh, uh, sci-fi just was not really held in that higher regard. Uh, so that was good. And and talking about novels as well, I've actually ended up finding a few of the original novels of Quantum Leap. I've got I've just very in a very short space of time, I've amassed a collection of eight of them so far. And so I've been reading through one called Prelude, which is the fourth book, I think it is. And it's all everything that took place before the pilot episode. So it's a bit of backstory as to how the project even started. So that's, that's kind of intriguing.
0: So sticking with sci-fi uh, and sci-fi news, uh, there's a lot of Star Wars stuff either wrapping up or coming soon or returning. And the only thing that I've really had the time to look at, because it's probably my favorite of the new series, is the trailer for the next season of Picard. And I am stoked. I I remember talking with you about the teaser from, I think it was Comic-Con this year, where it was just audio. It was just like still images or like like B-roll shots of like a desk, uh, probably Picard's desk. Uh, and it was, you know, Picard, Crusher, Riker, Worf, LaForge, like all just kind of like voicing over and saying like, we're with you. We'll we'll go to the end of the universe and, and one more adventure, that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. seeing the trailer and one of my favorite things about Picard is just that friendship between Riker and Picard. And just like that steadfast kind of, I know what you're going to ask me before you ask it. Yes is the answer, of course, but I just, I need to know the details. Like it's just like, why are you still like, (laughs) there's a conversation in the trailer about, you know, Picard is asking Will Riker to do something really dangerous. And Picard is trying to like get around to like, look, this is really important. He's trying, he's trying to like present his case. And riker's just like when are we leaving <laughs> it's like and i i just i love that kind of candor that that they have and so i don't want to go overboard with watching too many trailers because i think there's been another one that's come out but i decidedly said like no like i really like the show and i really like the reveals and i did not know that riker and troy were going to be in the first season of picard and so that was a huge surprise for me watching the show so now even though in the trailer i know what actors are going to be in it i don't know when or how they're going to arrive so i don't want to see like a trailer clip and have that be like well that was part of the reveal i don't want that spoiled for me yeah so so i've decided to not watch any more trailers but i'm definitely looking forward to the next season of picard but you've obviously got a whole list of stuff that that's coming up but starting with picard like are you you're looking forward to it as well i'm assuming
1: uh oh absolutely and and we will clarify this is star trek and not star wars as was mentioned earlier I uh, Star Wars? <laughs> you said star wars wow uh, I, I found it very entertaining <laughs> um but yeah the the trailer that they released has a lot of highlights in it which have gotten everybody excited i am thrilled to bits with it but one of the other things that they've said is that doesn't have like the big reveal and stuff that doesn't have like the big spoiler stuff and we're like what wait but there's all this big stuff and they're like yeah there's stuff that's bigger so i'm glad that they're they're holding back a lot in in the trailer as well so that's that's good to see um but one of the things which i think is absolutely fantastic is that we get to see obviously a lot of the original crew it's not a reunion It's not like them just all meeting up and and going out and doing stuff. There is a a plot thread that starts with a distress call from Beverly Crusher. And that's what gets the ball rolling. And then other people will start to come in as time goes on. A little bit like how Riker and Troy weren't just in season one at the beginning. They kind of came into it and it felt natural for that to happen. It's the same with this, which I'm liking. But we also get to meet LaForge's two daughters, as well so there's going to be Ensign Sidney LaForge who's played by Ashley Sharp Chestnut who I'm not familiar with Um, I looked at the IMDB page I've not seen anything from there but the two shows that I'd recognize the names of she was in an episode of Gotham and she was in four episodes of Homeland and then we also have Ensign Alandra LaForge who's played by his real life daughter Mika Burton oh cool and that is something where I've been hoping with how much she's been involved in presenting a lot of the Star Trek um, after shows and things like that and some of the Star Trek events, I thought she would just be great to finally play LaForge's daughter and it's actually happening, which is great. But it is only the two daughters. There's no sign of Brett LaForge. And that is a character that was only ever mentioned in dialogue in the series finale, All Good Things. So when they're in the future with the anti-time anomaly, uh, Geordie mentions that he's got three children. Uh, So two daughters and a son, but it looks like they're just sticking to the two daughters. But again, that future never happened. So uh, when Picard changed history, then (laughs) Geordie's lost a son from the sounds of it. And age-wise, I mean, he was due to apply to Starfleet Academy the following year, so...
0: I'm not so deep into Star Trek that I reckon like I know what those timelines are and how they interact and they did so much time hopping or time manipulation in the TNG show that I'm just like I don't remember where they ended up and what the rules were and and it's one of the problems I think too when you watch a lot of sci-fi uh and everybody's got different rules for time travel (laughs) you know and so you're like Wait a minute. Which rules apply to this show? Like, how does this work? (laughs) So, uh, although I have to say though, like one of my favorite TNG movies was First Contact, right? Like, that's I think that's one of my oh yeah one of my standout favorites in that series, Uh, and and that dealt with time travel as well too, right? So
1: which spilled over into Enterprise as well, right? They had an episode that followed on from that, and in a way, it kind of showed that a lot of time meddling resulted in Enterprise. So Enterprise is a slight skew on the timeline as well, which is quite interesting. I, I love that Worf is now a pacifist.
0: Yeah, I mean, I hope they don't overplay that. Like I, I, it's, a fun, <laughs> it's a fun line from the, the trailer, But I, and I'm hoping that it's, it's just like the one-time thing. I hope they don't milk that too much.
1: At the same time, it's nice to see Worf's development because in the early seasons, Worf didn't really have much of a character Throughout TNG, he started to develop one, but it wasn't really until Deep Space Nine that you really got into the lot of the meat of, of who Worf is and, and got to see him progress. So it's nice to see that we're not just seeing Worf. And I imagine the others just as they were when we last saw them, in the same way that Picard has changed over time. It's good to see that these characters have developed and it. it's going to be interesting to see what those changes have been in their lives since we last saw them. I think that's going to add a lot more intrigue. We've also got the Enterprise F uh, was shown, and it is a design that has been around for a while. And there's a game called Star Trek Online, and it's the Enterprise F from that. So that ship that they've had, the future Enterprise, in a video game is now officially canon and is the official successor to the Enterprise E. I don't know how I feel about that. In a way, I think it is good, I've just never been a, a, a fan of the design of that ship. So we'll have to see if it grows on me after I see it a little bit more in live action. But um I, I imagine you probably haven't seen that design. Did it zip by in the trailer?
0: Yes. Okay, so briefly briefly. But I don't see the thing is like again, I don't see that. In the trailer and go, oh, that's from that video game. Like, I see that and go like, that looks like maybe it's one of the Enterprise from one of the movies. But it's like, but didn't they all blow up? Like, I thought that was one of the things (laughs) in in the movies that they always end up changing ships because the adventure ends up destroying it. Um, Yeah. So, uh, so I don't, I don't really remember. And then there's other things where, like, you get into the future, and the Enterprise from the future is looks different. So, like, I've got all kinds of different versions of the Enterprise in my head, and I can't tell you where, oh, they, yeah. where they come from, right? <laughs> so, so it's not something, it's not something like for me with Star Wars, when I would recognize like an X-wing or a TIE fighter, or an A-wing, or something immediately, and be like, oh, I know what that is. Whereas this I, with Star Trek, I just I can't, especially because in recent years, other series have taken the kind of classic looking saucer and um i guess it's the warp nacelle kind of look of federation ships and kind of done all kinds of different things with them like you've got discovery you've got strange well strange new worlds is enterprise but like you've got um i'm trying to think about what they were called there were there were other ships even in picard that had like a similar but different kind of look to them Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. Um, well, what are the, like, I can't remember what, at the end of the first season of Picard, Riker arrives with, like, a whole fleet of these, like, elite class something-something starships from the Federation. And they all kind of look yeah. like a, a, you know, a pointy version of a of an Enterprise, you know?
1: Yeah, they they, they were all very cookie-cutter and um, copy-paste. There, there was about four subtle variations amongst them. Uh, a lot of fans didn't like that they just looked so similar. Mm, so that's mm-hmm. why in season two, we get a lot more variety in the ships and some older designs as well, which feels a bit more true to to what we'd normally see.
0: I think the only ship design in Star Trek recently that I was like, it eh, doesn't really do it for me is Book's ship from Discovery.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's fair.
0: I, It's okay. Like it's not, I think it's points for being original, I guess. But for me, it just reminded me of, of the B-Wings from... From Star Wars, and yeah. but they have so much more interesting shape language, and this was just like okay, well, the cockpits on one side, but like other than that, it's just not really.
1: It looks like a broken boomerang.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and doesn't it like it has some sort of weird like it reshapes itself, doesn't it? Yeah, like it doesn't. Yeah, and quick, when ships start thing. doing that, I'm just like okay, like I kind of want as much as I like sci-fi and the fantastical nature of all this stuff. I do kind of want ships to be like a solid thing. You know, yeah. it gives you kind of like a grounding, you
1: know? Yeah, no, that, that absolutely makes sense. Uh, we've got some new and returning cast for this show as well. Uh, the, the new villain is played by Amanda Plummer, who is the real-life daughter of Christopher Plummer. So it's, it's all, she's now joining the Star Trek family that her father's been part of, because he played Chang, General Chang, mm-hmm. in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And so to have her come on board is going to be very interesting. She's playing a character called Vadik, who's an alien captain of a ship called the Shrike. And we don't know much about her motives. All we know is that she's got her sights set on Picard and his crew from his days on the Enterprise. So it feels like a bit of a revenge story. But as to how or why, you know, what did the crew do that set things in motion? Not sure. But. That's going to be interesting. The one thing that really got me excited is that Daniel Davis is returning as Professor Moriarty. And it's odd because I was uh, thinking about our our mutual friend, Hannah, who is working her way through Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, she's seen the first episode with Moriarty. She hasn't seen the second one. That got me kind of thinking, like, it'll be so good if we could just see one more, because his stories are so, you know, they're, they're brilliant episodes. Of, uh, for those who don't know, Mariotti is a holodeck character that gains sentience and becomes in- super intelligent and manages to take over the ship twice. And so to have him returning a third time is basically a dream come true for me uh, in that regard. What, did, do you recall those particular episodes? Was he a character that you kind of latched on?
0: Oh, yeah. I watched TNG once through when it was live with my dad, because that was just a thing that we did when I was a kid, Uh, a kid teenager. Uh, And then when it was on in syndication, the two the two Star Trek shows that I'm most familiar with are TNG and Voyager. Voyager was like a five o'clock show when I was in university because it was, again, on in syndication. So, like, I watched entire seasons in a couple of weeks because it was on daily, like Monday through Friday sort of thing. Mm. And I do remember the holodeck episodes because I don't remember whether when TNG was in syndication, whether they were airing it in order or whether they would just be airing like popular episodes and stuff. Um, But I, I did always really enjoy the holodeck episodes. I always paid more attention to them. Like, for example, if I was seeing TNG on TV in syndication, if it was a holodeck episode, I would be more likely to stick around and watch it. Than I would if it was just like another Ferengi episode or something. I was like, that whatever. Yeah. Like I've I've seen them, so I don't necessarily need this one in my life. Um, but I would stick around for the holodeck ones just because I found that they broke they broke out of that kind of like talking suits on a bridge yeah. thing that that they did an awful lot in the show. And and I also and this could be true. I don't know. Uh, it felt like the actors had more fun with the holodeck episodes. <laughs> you know, like for example, like the like, Robin yeah. Hood one. Like I mean, like everybody remembers that, right? Yeah, the Robin Hood TNG episode, yeah. Worf especially in that one. <laughs> yeah, there's
1: there's also one where Patrick Stewart gets to show off his Shakespearean chops by actually, uh, you know, portraying one of those characters when he's with Data and they're basically going through Shakespeare. So it's it's really neat to see Picard teaching Data.
0: And that must have been a treat for for Brent Spiner too, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and talking of which, he's returning and again. Um, there seems to be no shortage of characters for for Brent Spiner to play these days, but he is going to be returning as Law, and there is no context around that, because the last that we saw, Data had dismantled and disabled Law, and then we've had the synths who have been outlawed, and now we've got Law back somehow, and if he's messing around in the fold, and is he in charge, is he just being rebuilt built and recruited. Who knows? But that is like a massive spanner in the works. That's going to be interesting.
0: So, aside from Picard what are we looking forward to in the Star Trek series going forward?
1: There may be another movie. Star Trek Four was cancelled, so that's the one in the the Kelvin timeline. And Patrick Stewart, when he was on stage, uh, said that I understand there were Paramount Plus people here and execs from Paramount Pictures and then he kind of pleaded with them like we could still make a movie so that sounded more like it was a pitch for a potential film as opposed to him confirming that there's one I think he was almost trying to use the crowd to, to mm. get on his side <laughs> so who knows this, this may not be the end but it is uh, the final season of Picard is 10 episodes and it debuts uh, February 16th of next year Um, so there could be more there but in terms of other stuff that's coming out tv wise Lower Decks has just finished its last episode today uh, for season three not the last episode of the the show but just of the season Uh, so that came out today Uh, I haven't had a chance to see it yet but Prodigy is uh, another show that's more family orientated and they're releasing the first uh, part of uh, the second half of season one. And that comes out today as well. So today's a, a bit of a, a drop for two Star Trek shows, which is fantastic, especially as Lower Decks is an incredible comedy. It's uh, it's so true to Star Trek and one of my, my favorites so far. Um, but when Prodigy returns with the USS Protostar, uh, we're apparently going to find a few new things about the ship and what it's for and ronnie cox is going to be reprising his role of edward jellicoe so he he people know him as dick jones from robocop in next generation he played a captain who took over from picard briefly uh for a couple of episodes during a a two-part special and so he's going to be coming back reprising that role which is going to be exciting and so that, that, uh, that all returns today. I don't know when he's going to show up or for how many episodes, but uh, that's going to be fun to see. Um, and then we've got Strange New Worlds where there's not been much information released. All we know is that they started filming the second season in February. They wrapped it in July. So they're all just doing post-production and we don't know anything more specific than it's coming out sometime 2023. So I'd imagine probably towards the tail end and um, we're finally because um I, I i i don't know what your feelings were but i liked that they were doing things episodic per character
0: i only ever saw uh, maybe two or three i d- i don't remember i didn't get very far into it because i got so oh, frustrated right. with the crave app like it it yeah. looked like it could have been a beautiful show and the crave app was basically streaming it in 720p it was Garbage. Right. Uh, yes, so, I, I remember
1: this now. Yeah.
0: So I I had to peel off, and and it was just it wasn't worth the money. And then recently, actually, you and I were discussing, uh, in between podcasts, that uh, I you know decided to resub to Apple TV Plus because they've got some new offerings and the apple has the the one package now so like it makes it easier for me to subscribe to a couple of things mm-hmm. that i'm already it's, it's similar to amazon prime where like i'm paying for prime shipping so i have access to prime video and i kind of think about them as one cost so it makes it yeah. more cost effective same thing apple's doing this package thing i use apple music so like it makes more sense for me so then i now have access to apple tv plus again and one of the things that i can do is with an add-on it does cost more money but I could add on briefly, like if I wanted to catch up on something on Paramount Plus, I could add that to Apple TV Plus. However, it doesn't have all the titles. It has Discovery. It has Picard. But it doesn't have Strange <laughs> New Worlds. And no. Strange New Worlds is the one that I want to watch because I've fallen off of Discovery. I got I got tired of Sad Whispers Star Trek. So um, I haven't been back to the, I don't even remember where I left off with this Discovery. I'd have to go look at my watch history to figure out where that was.
1: Well, but. i know megan's wanting to watch it as well so maybe we should make a thing of it and just uh you know have a strange new worlds uh viewing session over time uh the three of us that, that you
0: know like that's not a bad idea because yeah. now that pandemic restrictions are so much like lighter and and you know it's a lot safer to do that kind of stuff because back when this stuff was really taking off it was all everybody just being home right like yeah it was just really it with the watch parties. It's not that they, we, we wouldn't want to. It's just that we really shouldn't, you know? But it's, yeah. that's no longer the, the case, I don't think.
1: With Strange New Worlds, they, each episode was very character-driven, which is great, you know, because uh, right. that, that's what changed Star Trek The Next Generation from season three onwards and made that so good. And again, doing this episodic, it makes sense to do it that way. But one character was missing, and that was Ortega. She never got her story. And so they teased at Comic-Con. They're like, we're not really showing you anything about the season, but we are going to show you one clip and it's all focused on Ortega. So it's great that we're, we're going to have that uh, coming back as well. Remind me, is she the security officer? Uh, she's the helmsman. Helmsman. Ortega's the helmsman. Okay,
0: I'm drawing a blank. So which one is the one that escaped the the slave race?
1: Lan Noonien Singh. That's the one that you're, you're thinking of. That's the security officer.
0: I think the episode that I remember seeing most recently was the episode that focused on the second in command.
1: Right. Yes.
0: Was and was there an episode about Ohura?
1: Yep. Yep. There's been an episode on all of them.
0: Right. So which one came first? was it the Ohura episode? Or was it the the second, the number one episode?
1: Ooh. Trying to remember the order that I feel that like I'm they sure, were but... back to back. So those are the that's yeah.
0: the, those are the last two that I remember seeing. Yeah. So I think maybe three episodes into the season. I don't think I got very yeah, far. That
1: makes sense. Yeah. They tend to have two Star Trek days a year, um, one that coincides with when first contact takes place, and then the other uh, coinciding when we went with Star Trek first aired. So that gives them good spacing about six months apart throughout the right. year. So I imagine during the next uh, Star Trek day, then we'll probably get more information on strange new worlds uh, another one that we we got a little bit more information on was discovery so this is the one that you are caught up with and if you're not then you'll be able mm. to get caught up with paramount plus at least
0: yes i will be able to get i will be able to get caught up with it if i want to every time yep. i try i get like two episodes in and i just like this is just the same and it makes me sad like it's not yeah. i don't <laughs> it's not a fun show to watch That's my, my beef with it (laughs) is that it's like everybody is just sad and depressed and it's always, it's always the only thing, the thing I find about discovery, which is I think the elephant in the room, it's very similar to people's complaints about Superman comics. Like in order to challenge Superman, in order to have any kind of like real kind of heroic story, they tend to throw like not only the fate of the world, but like the fate of the entire universe. Is, yeah. is in his hands and i feel like every plot in discovery is just like oh if we don't stop this then the entire galaxy is going to fold in on itself and all life as we know it will cease to exist it's like well if that yeah. happens then none of you are going to be around to worry about it so who cares like yeah. it just it i find that every time they turn around it's like oh the whole universe is in peril it's like but again like did, could you could you guys stop doing that maybe like i just i don't find it very intriguing
1: yeah, I must admit, season four is when I was just like, okay, again, really. <laughs> like, I was, yeah. I was enjoying it, but it was just like, this, this is just every time. Um, so there's, there's three bits of news that they brought out, and one of them is that it's not going to be a galaxy-wide crisis threat type thing. However, it is going to be a galaxy-wide treasure hunt with disastrous results if the Federation doesn't find whatever secret it is. So. At least it's not just like we've got this big impending doom thing. It seems to be like a, a treasure hunt race. Perhaps they have to get to something before somebody else does. I'm um, not sure, but at least it sounds like they're trying to shake things up a little bit and do something different. So I'm hoping that's the case for it, for the very reasons you've just described.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like the actors in it. Don't get me wrong. Like, oh, I, yeah. I, I mean, the characters and the actors are great. I, I really enjoy actually the. I can't remember the characters' names, but the Navigator and the Helmsman on Discovery, both oh, of those yeah. actors, they do such a fun, fantastic job. They're yeah. so unique. And and I feel like they, they bring a lot to it. And I think, I don't remember, I think it was season three. What's the one where uh, Book's Planet is blown up? Is that season three or season four?
1: Uh, I think that's season four.
0: Okay, so season four is the one that I got into, but then I maybe never finished. Yeah. Um, so I'm not as far behind as I thought. But during season four, I feel like they gave an awful lot of character Development to those two those two characters, and again, I, I feel bad. I'm not remembering their names.
1: Detma and oh, a second and and Detma is one of my favorite characters. Actually, I, I'm I'm yeah. Now that they started showing more of her, especially showing how she dealt with being flung forward, uh that was yeah. I, I've I've really enjoyed that, and I've I've spoken about that in a previous episode here as well.
0: I think that's probably where I was like I was getting intrigued, but then like the other stuff, the overall plot was just like pulling me pulling me out of it. Yeah. It's one of those shows that I, it's so highly produced and like you, I want to like it and I want to get into it. And I have the same issues with like trying to go back and watch TNG. I remember liking it. I know it's a good show, but I go back and it, because it's such an older show, like you just, it's hard to get through that first
1: season, you know? One thing that it, you have to give it credit for is that all the other shows that we're enjoying, like Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks and, and Picard, etc., all owe themselves to Discovery. Discovery is what allowed those to happen. So I'm glad it exists for that reason alone.
0: No, that's, that's very
1: true. In a way, each show is completely different. And so I like that not everybody has to like every show. There is always going to be a show that you do like. And the, the fact that there's that variety there has always been the case. Next Generation was always very different to the original series. Deep Space Nine, very different to those two. Voyager comes along, again, very different. And but like It's always a different show. There's nothing that's just like one set formula. Um, yeah which is good um so the the other two pieces, one of them was just the release date, which they're saying late twenty twenty three so again, we don't know exactly when that's coming out beyond that, but the other part was a new character, an actor joining the show, and that's callous Keith Rennie playing a character called Captain Rayner, and people will know him as the Cylon model number two from Battlestar Galactica. He is a great actor. I think he's going to bring a lot of complexity and gravitas to the show. Uh, his Starfleet captain is, going to, is apparently going to be um, very gruff but smart and has a story track record of wartime success. And so, yeah, I think having him on is going to be good. He's he's actually the second actor from Battlestar Galactica. Uh, the first was Rekha Sharma who played Tori Foster. Just seeing him in the promotional material that's got me very excited about uh, what he'll bring to the show
0: it's funny how casting will get you excited even though it's really the plot that keeps you going you know what I mean like once you get I like I can get excited about casting but if the show doesn't have a great plot or if it gets repetitive then it's like well then I, st- I really start to lose interest but but when you see promotional material or if you hear about casting and specifically with starship captains in Star Trek I find mm. that A lot hinges on that. Uh, Yes. And I feel like, um, like I remember even seeing an interview with Anson Mount talking about it and him saying like, you know, the, I don't want to say pressure, but like, there's definitely a a known set of boots you have to fill in terms of your performance. Um, With the, I guess, knowing this is kind of like a a bit of a pun, like you kind of have to be commanding, you know, like in that role. (laughs) and in, 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 but in, in in a presence kind of way, it, not necessarily bossing people around and sounding, you know, like a military person. But like I just I feel like there's there's an amount of gravitas that has to come with being a, a captain,
1: oh, absolutely.
0: and that's got to be tricky for casting. Like that has to be that has to be a tough nut to crack
1: so for Starship Voyager, when they were shooting the pilot, Kate Mulgrew was not the original Captain Janeway. We had a different one played by a Canadian actress, uh, Genevieve Bujold. And when you watch the early test footage, she is not right for the part. She it, it feels flat. There's just really not much going on there. It really makes you appreciate how good an actor Kate Mulgrew is, especially when it comes to facial expressions and stuff. Now, Genevieve was more of a film actor. She ended up not being interested in, in signing on for the show. So she quit. And then that's when she was recast. But yeah, when you watch both of them side by side, you see how much of a difference the actor can bring to that script. So uh, when you're saying like, obviously the plot is important. Absolutely it is. When you see an actor coming on board uh, like Callus Keith Rennie, and you know that there's that gravitas there, you know that whatever that script is like, they are going to be able to elevate it. And that's what gets me excited. So you could have just a, a fairly lame script but if you know that patrick stewart's there you know that at least he's going to be able to bring stuff out of that script that a lesser actor probably wouldn't be able to if that makes sense hopefully i'm still excited when it actually comes out (laughs) i mean
0: i hope i have access to to a lot of that stuff uh, you know with with the um the apple tv plus app on my xbox anyway being really good in terms of the image quality so with sci-fi shows like I really don't like it when the image quality is terrible because it kind of takes me out of any kind of suspension of disbelief that happened with all these cool effects and ships and things like that so so yeah I'm hoping to have um access that I feel justified in paying for uh to to watch the shows so we'll see and I know that I'll have access to back seasons of things like you know Lower Decks or Prodigy or whatever I see them on multiple platforms too it's not it's not just Apple TV plus I've seen them on um, Crave. I've seen. I think I've seen them in other. I think I can watch them on YouTube. Like, there's a bunch of different places that you can watch. I mean, if you've got certain paid access, um, mm-hmm. because it's all at some point, it's all like partnership with Paramount Plus. Like, Paramount Plus seems to be an add-on to other streaming services, depending on where you are in the world. Yeah. Uh, we won't get into the whole licensing issue because we'll be here for another hour. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, like I just I I do I do hope I can get. You know, regain access to to a good streaming service that that has this content because I do like Star Trek overall. Like, I may mm. nitpick here and there, um, but I think the for me the the thing that I'm looking forward to the most is the next season of Picard, and I feel like the other shows are things I will save for waiting in between episodes of Picard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like when I'm when I'm in that Star Trek zone, I'll be watching the other stuff in between to kind of to probably catch up
1: and and that is one of the good things that they uh staggering shows out so uh, other than for example today where there's one episode um one show ending its season another show beginning its season on the same day other than that th- there's really no overlap so there's just there's star trek on the air all the time but it's not kind of like it was at the late 90s where we ended up with multiple shows running simultaneously and yeah. it was kind of leading to a bit of fatigue as a result which is is great
0: Well, that brings us into the Internet Minute, which is, of course, brought to you by you. The Citadel Cafe is 100% listener supported. If you get value out of the show, please consider putting a little bit of value back in. You can become a member at patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe. Joining at any level will get you an invite to the member only Discord server that's shared with my personal Discord and, of course, access to the Burstacut audio bonus sessions. Special thanks go out to our Bean Counter patrons, Cosmic and Smurf588. Thank you very much for your support of this episode. Patron count is at 28. That is steady on from last week. Our goal each week is to have at least one more patron than the week before. If you would like to be patron number 29, visit patreon.com slash the Citadel I do not have a pick this week, but Alistair, you have come armed with a pick for the viewers and the listeners. What is your pick this week?
1: So mine's a series of videos. Um, from a guy called Colin Furs, he's a YouTuber, stuntman, inventor, maker, filmmaker, and former plumber as well, which has become very useful for uh, the stuff that he's doing. He's he's made a ton of gadgets. He even made Griff's extendable baseball bat, which was a very fun episode as well. And his work has been featured on TV shows like Top Gear, where he made some functional Bond cars with all the gadgets and flamethrowers and stuff. And he was a presenter on Sky One's Gadget Geek. So he he's he's up there and. Back in 2015, Sky One had a a show called You, Me, and the Apocalypse. And so in partnership with them, he dug a giant hole in his back garden and built an underground bunker. So that was back in 2015. Later on, he decided he wanted to build a tunnel from that bunker to his house and his shed. And so he's had to tunnel underneath these buildings. He can't just dig them up. So he's been digging through and building this whole secret tunnel system. And it's been fantastic. I discovered it during the pandemic, and he just finished phase one of that tunnel. Um, I think there's been about 10 episodes for it. They're about 20 minutes in length. And so uh, just going and watching Colin Firz's Digging a Secret Tunnel is it's, it's a joy just seeing somebody who obviously understands how to do all this building work seeing them problem solving this is where his skills as a plumber is coming well when he's trying to figure out about ventilation and and pumping heat into there so he doesn't freeze all that kind of stuff but it is it's is just fascinating and who would not want to have a secret tunnel leading to an underground bunker under their house in i think it's nottingham i think he's from or lincolnshire lincolnshire i think he's from um so yeah it's that is a lot of fun and worth checking out
0: i recognize it i've not i've not been following the channel i don't know if i've watched an entire episode but i've certainly like come across a video somewhere late at night or something like that like watched a three-minute edit or a youtube short or i've seen i've seen a presentation you know maybe it was someone showcasing it or something but i've definitely seen seen him doing that because i remember someone talking about all of the uh I guess, legal stuff that he had to go through in order to get it done. <laughs> yeah. Like, because you got to get building permits and like, you can't just dig, you, even though you own your backyard, you can't just go digging anywhere and building whatever you want because you have to make sure that you're not going to be running into like any underground pipes or drainage. Yeah. or Like, you don't want to like build this thing in your backyard and as a result, have all of your yard drain water flood your neighbor's house. You know what I mean? Like, you yeah, there's a lot to consider when you do stuff like this.
1: One of the later episodes, he actually reveals that uh, some of it was he just did it and then asked for permission later. So there was a little bit of skirting around some of those laws, which uh, which is quite entertaining. But he just brings a lot of enthusiasm and energy and excitement to it, mainly because of his experience as a presenter. Um, but also just getting to see things which I normally am not involved in. I've never done DIY. I've never done construction. So seeing him just yeah. build... Uh, you know frames for concrete to be poured in and basically building the walls within this hole that he's built it's 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 fascinating i absolutely love it
0: as someone that's always lived in an apartment for my entire adult life uh i mean obviously we had homes growing up but i wasn't Mm. old enough to even help dad with any kind of diy and i did work with my stepfather for a little bit when i was in university as you know he was a carpenter but like we weren't working on the home that we were living in, we'd be working on like you know warehouses or like contract jobs, stuff like that. And I was mostly deb- demolition; I wasn't really building much. I might have framed a, uh, the odd the odd bit of framing, but most of the time it was yep. me like <laughs> Joel sledgehammer knocked down that wall. Okay, <laughs> you know, like it was it was it was tiring, but it was a fun job. Um, so any kind of DIY, any kind of like building stuff, I always am really intrigued by it, and then super jealous too because I just find that the trade skills that you have to have to do all that kind of stuff yourself. Like you have to learn a lot. And oh, yeah. to to do it well, especially if it's a place that you own and you live in, you don't want to do it poorly because then it, it devalues and could cause a lot of problems down the line. And And even if it's not something crazy like a bunker in your backyard, like even if you're just like renovating your dining room or putting in a new kitchen or doing those things, like there's just a certain amount of, I can imagine pride for folks that can do it very well and and know how to do it properly and i get jealous of of people that either do it professionally or have been able to turn their hobby into like a side hustle with like a youtube channel not i mean this is obviously this probably this guy's full-time job but but like when people have content that they can then fund it and then they end up because they own a house have all the proper tools you know yeah. like i've done a little bit of shelf work or a little bit of things around here in my apartment that are not permanent; they're just attached to the wall or or whatever. But I like I don't have, I don't even have an electric saw. Like you know, like I, I have to borrow one or or you know go to my parents to to use a table saw or something like that if I ever needed to do that. Whereas you know when people have a home and they've invested in a couple of main tools that they can use for this kind of stuff, I'm always a little jealous because it's like man, not only do you get to own and shape the environment that you're in. But you also have the tools to do these kind of things without the need to hire a contractor, or yeah. you know, like I think, like my cousins, they he's he's very handy. Um, my cousin Katie or her her husband Brad, and and uh, I don't know them very well, but most of the time on social media, I'm just seeing whatever DIY project he's got going on, and I I mean he I think he just does it for fun and like he just enjoys. Doing what he does around the house, but he's so good at it. And Mm. I asked him, like, you know, like, did you go to school for this? Like, are you, you know, in trades? And he's like, nope, I just, you know, learned on my own and just through practice. And, but my gosh, I mean, he does beautiful, beautiful work in terms of just like redoing a dining room or like building his own pizza oven in the backyard. I'm just like, my God, (laughs) like, stop it. Like, I mean, at the same time, (laughs) don't stop it, but stop it. Like, you could just leave some for the rest of us. Like, it just, it's, it's so cool to see that kind of skill because yeah like i mean i'm not saying that i'm unskilled but everything i do is digital like everything i do is tied to digital online entertainment and yes it has to be creative and you have to have a certain amount of skills and tools and all that kind of stuff to do it and to to some other people that might be like reading greek you know whereas Mm. to me because i'm so unpracticed in things like trades and carpentry and, and things like that around the house that that to me is just like it's a whole skill set that i just don't possess yet but hopefully you know when you know i eventually own a home or whatever like i think that would be that's i can see myself getting pulled into that as like you know right now i think the closest i get to that kind of a a creative hobby is like cooking and for me it'll be like i can imagine the first project you know in, in a home for me would be like whatever the backyard needs you know like outside deck or patio or barbecue like i need something to like make all this time i spend barbecuing worth it <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know yeah. and i can i can see that kind of focus so um but yeah i mean that's that's really really cool i'll have to uh, i'll have to check this out especially because like for these kind of videos like a 20 minute video or a 10 minute video that's not a big ask because you're gonna oh. get a lot of details and a lot of looking and I, I do remember seeing the inside of this on some sort of maybe it was like a talk show or something like that um but it uh, it does look very very cool
1: yeah, and it, I mean it's one of those things where even if you're not going to watch the whole thing, just watching the the phase one complete video, the the latest one, I mean he's giving you basically a tour of the entire thing and kind right. of showing you yeah. everything that's there, and it's cool. I like, and if you're watching the early ones, like there's a bit where he builds a minecart track so that he can sh- uh, you know shift all the debris and stuff. So he's got to come up with those kind of systems in there as well, which is really cool. So yeah, he, he does a, a lot of little fun gimmicky things in there.
0: Well, that wraps up this episode of The Siddle Cafe. You can get more information about the show and links to some of the things that Alistair and I talked about at thecitadelcafe.com. Music for the show was composed by Kevin McLeod, and you can email us at thecitadelcafe at gmail.com or find the show by name on Twitter. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or find the show on YouTube. Word of mouth is the easiest way to support the show. Just tell a friend about The Siddle Cafe and where they can go to listen to it. My name is Joel Duggan. You can find everything I am doing online at joelduggan.com. Listen to my other podcasts about Minecraft at thespawnchunks.com and follow me at Joel Duggan on social media and Joel Duggan on Twitch, where I have been streaming more frequently lately, including some satisfactory streams, but we're returning to Lego tomorrow. And of course, Minecraft on the weekend. Alistair, where can people find you online?
1: Well, I'm Alistair McFly and you can check out both of my Star Trek retrospective podcasts over at longrangesensors.com. Uh, we're just coming off of our summer break so uh, we're going to be pumping out some new episodes soon plus i have some holiday booked myself throughout november so i'm going to be making some time to return to twitch so if you want to catch some of my minecraft streams you'll be able to follow me over at twitchtv McFly.
0: you've been listening to the citadel cafe where we are fast easy and cheap but you can only pick two